0: All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome to our last class of David Scares Christology. Whether we finish it or not, we've finished it. Let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, for ever and ever, amen. We left off on page 99, discussing the resurrection, and we have hit the major points of the resurrection. So. Let us uh, just proceed to make short work of the rest of this chapter. Of course, on page 99, we are looking at uh, the, the last few lines, the last few lines of this, of this paragraph that continues from 98 over to 99. So just go with me there, and I'm going to pick up a couple last thoughts that transition us. The taunts of the crowd, Scare writes, that Jesus so trusted in God by claiming to be his son that God should now rescue him, have in fact proven true in the resurrection. You remember the taunt? He trusted in, uh, that God would deliver him, let him deliver him if he delights in him, etc. I mean, ironically, verbatim, quoting the psalm. And, of course, the Lord does this very thing in the resurrection. Scare continues, God has not... left left his holy one in hell or permitted his body to see corruption. So God does indeed delight in him. God does indeed deliver him in such a way that neither death nor hell have any power over him or can do him any harm. And the resurrection demonstrates this. Scare continues. While the synoptics, again Matthew, Mark, and Luke, while the synoptics and Paul speak of God's raising Jesus from the dead, John speaks of Jesus offering up his life and taking it back through the resurrection. Both perspectives, God's raising Jesus and Jesus raising himself, have meaning for Christology. The synoptic perspective sees Jesus as God's Son, who is humiliated as the Son of Man, carries out the will of the Father, and believes that the will which requires his death will also vindicate him through resurrection. The Jehanine view regards Jesus as the principal agent of the resurrection. His glory is hidden, but he still remains the God who has life in himself and can raise up Lazarus as easily as he can raise himself. He is not only the object of the Father's resurrection of the dead, but he is himself life and resurrection. As God's son, he must be resurrected and live forever. So, beautiful, beautiful. The synoptics there, almost more focusing in on the human nature, or at least emphasizing that aspect. John's gospel, emphasizing the, the divine nature, focusing in on, in on that aspect that, you know, as Jesus says, no one takes more life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the power to lay it down and the power to take it up again. And probably you've noticed this in various pastors you've had throughout your life that they have a more synoptic leaning in terms of their preaching and teaching style or a more Johannine leaning. I mean, they're both absolutely true, but as human beings, we find ourselves not able to remain perfectly objective. Probably in our day and age, too, the Johannine resonates more um, as as we seek to have that surety that Christ, our Lord, truly is in control over life and death and has that power within himself. We tend to emphasize that more least i do personally all right so a nice paragraph there by scare nothing controversial next paragraph in matthew the resurrection plays a demonstrative role similar to that of the virgin birth the birth from the virgin marks jesus as the son of god and the resurrection confirms him as god's son who has carried out the father's will Christ's resurrection confirms to his followers that his death for sins was necessary and that it was a satisfactory atonement offered to God. So here, zooming in on Matthew's theology a bit, of which Scare is an expert, and seeing that the resurrection demonstrates that the atonement was satisfactory to God. The resurrected one presents himself as the one who was crucified and this provides the church with its foundation. The church has no immediate access to the meaning of the death of Christ by crucifixion except through the resurrection. This is so right, if you, if you kind of do a thought experiment and he died, I mean that would really just be the end of Christianity, what, what claim are you going to make other than some sort of purely spiritual claim which would have collapsed upon itself many centuries ago. So the fact that he is crucified and risen, uh, this gives meaning to his death. His death by crucifixion was, well, all the things it is. We'd have to go back to the chapter on the motifs of the atonement in order to, again, discuss all of what the death of Christ means. Scare continues, any attempt to explain the death of Jesus without the resurrection will necessarily result in seeing it only within historical dimensions, as has been done by scholars in their quest for the historical Jesus. Right, so if you try to see the cross without the resurrection, you lose all of its, all of its potency, all of its meaning, and you end up with just a historical event, uh, and, and you'll, see, you'll see to some degree the problem with that, of course. Um, The resurrection becomes metaphorical. Everything becomes metaphorical or spiritual. Scare continues, without the resurrection, there is no assurance that his death atoned for the sins of the world. Jesus' resurrection also has revelatory significance. The Gospels do not picture the resurrected Jesus as the one who gives a new revelation, but as the one who confirms what he has previously spoken. The resurrection narratives do not provide their readers with anything essentially new. He is risen as he told them, and he told them everything that would happen to him. This Christology, which involves suffering and glorification, was already preached by Moses and the prophets, and this prophetic message was reflected in Christ's preaching. This theme is carried over into the earliest preaching of the church. Uh, Reference there to Acts chapter 2. His words must be recognized as divine and are to be taught to the nations so that repentance may be preached among them. The resurrection is not only the heart of the church's message but makes the message possible and demands belief in it. Paul has Christ crucified as the heart and center of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 2.2 But the crucified one is now also the resurrected one. The death of Jesus is for sins, but without the resurrection, mankind remains in its sins. Now quoting 1 Corinthians 15, 17. For if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Thus, from the very beginning, the church worshipped weekly to celebrate Christ's resurrection. Uh, You see this very early on, even in the book of Acts, that worship moves uh, from the Sabbath to the first day of the week, Sunday, on the basis that Jesus was raised on that day. That's how important the resurrection is, how foundational for Christianity, and also the linchpin by which we can understand the atonement. Thus, from the beginning, Scare writes, the church worshipped weekly to celebrate Christ's resurrection, baptism with its burial into Christ's death, and the Lord's Supper as the proclamation of that death, like the church's preaching, took their content from Jesus as crucified for sins. The crucifixion and the resurrection were never isolated from each other, though they were distinct events. However, the one who was crucified was in every instance proclaimed as resurrected. The church is confessed as, quote-unquote, apostolic, not simply because of the divine mandate given by Jesus to his disciples, but because their roles as apostles and the content of their message were founded on their witness of his resurrection. All right. Those are scarce concluding remarks on the resurrection overall a uh, fantastic treatment of the various biblical ways of speaking and thinking about the resurrection. I think maybe the major take-home points being that the resurrection is proclaimed throughout the Old Testament. The death and resurrection of Christ are proclaimed throughout the Old Testament. They're proclaimed throughout the preaching of Jesus Then they're taken into the Holy Scriptures, the evangelists as well as Paul, including the earliest historical documents of the New Testament, and put forward as the central aspects of our faith, the death of Christ for sins, the resurrection of Jesus for our justification, etc. All right, any thoughts, any questions you have, or shall we move on to the final chapter? Off we go. Page 101, chapter 10. Um, Maybe you got this sense, this is my sense. Uh, Maybe Dr. Scare had another book to write and he wanted wanted to get through this quickly. Maybe he was bored with it, I don't know. Uh, You could, certainly much more could be written about the Ascension, but particularly about the second coming of Christ. So it's treated fairly briefly, fairly short shrift here. And I simply state these things, not to be critical of Dr. Scare in any way. But just to uh, balance out your perception, so you don't get an idea as if the ascension or the second coming of Christ were sort of minor blips, either in terms of Christology or in terms of what we are uh, living for and, and waiting for, um, chiefly, chiefly the return of Christ. And of course, as we're waiting for his return, the assumption, uh, the ascension of Jesus has everything to do with our. Our experience of Jesus in the here and now, we'll get into that, but our experience of Jesus here and now is largely predicated upon the ascension, and that in anticipation of his his return on the last day. In other Christologies, you can find treatments of the ascension and second coming of Christ that are as long as this entire book. (laughs) That might be another way to say it. All right, page 101. Chapter 10, the Ascension and Second Coming of Christ. First, a quotation from the Lutheran Confessions, Book of Concord, Formula of Concord, Solid Declaration, Article 8, Paragraph 27. But now, since he ascended into heaven, not just like some other saint, but in the words of the apostle, Ephesians 4.10, far above all heavens, that he might truly fill all things. He is everywhere present to rule, not as God, but also as man, from sea to sea and to the ends of the earth, as the prophets foretell. References to Psalm 8.6, Psalm 93.1, and Zechariah 9.10. And the end, as the apostles testify, that he worked with them everywhere and confirmed the message by the signs that attended it. There is a lot jam-packed into this little statement, and in some respects it serves as scarce outline. I won't belabor it, but I do want to walk through it briefly with you. But now, since he ascended into heaven, not just like some other saint, there's the the first distinction, that it's not just like some other saint. Christ's ascension means something entirely different. He is ascending as the resurrected one, as the crucified and risen one. And you can see the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4.10 showing that his ascension is far above all heavens that he might truly fulfill all things. There's the other shift in our mentality that needs to happen. Christ doesn't ascend into heaven um, in, in, in any of the concrete ways we might sort of think, like uh, okay, well, he floated up into the clear blue sky and then got into the universe and you know, then, then somehow faster than the speed of light flew through all the empty space and all the billions of stars and then eventually arrived into, into heaven, which is somewhere out there, up there. This is a sort of medieval cosmology and a sort of reformed cosmology. But it's not the biblical, it's not the one that St. Paul holds. There's, there's principle number one, it's not the one that St. Paul holds. Christ's ascension isn't so much a spatial thing. It isn't so much him going from point X to point, you know, Y. The point of the ascension is that he fills all things. Well then what's the next statement? The statement my confirmation kids always ask me. If Jesus is God, and he is, then how did he not always fill all things already? And that point, this statement from the Confessions also treats. He is everywhere present to rule, not as God, but also as man. In other words, the sense there, not only as God, but also as man. That's the change that has taken place. That's why when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me, The very common question, and right enough in so far as it goes, is, as God's Son, as God, did he not already have all authority in heaven and on earth? So what is the import of that statement? God in human flesh, namely the human nature, to this man has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Because this man in human flesh has ascended, he is accessible to us everywhere. And so it is a profound change in the mode of being. I think it was Dr. Nagel who once preached, uh, Christ ascends away from us in order to draw nearer to us than ever before. That perfectly captures the dynamic of the ascension. You can even recall this uh, from Mary Magdalene in the garden trying to grasp hold of the feet of Jesus And he says, very quizzically, very puzzlingly, you cannot yet grab a hold of me for I have not yet ascended to my Father. In other words, Jesus does not want to be grasped hold of by his disciples in this mode of being, not yet until his ascension, where he ascends, fills all things, comes to us really and truly by word and sacrament Mm -hmm. there and in that way after he has ascended to his father may we with mary magdalene grasp hold of him have him revealed to us in the word in the opening of the scriptures Um, have him revealed to us in the breaking of the bread etc all right so this is the import of the ascension as i said this statement from the formula of concord so wonderful so rich we could spend uh, the entire time on it and just simply use that as the outline for scarce text. On to what Scare writes, page 101. The Reformed understanding of the ascension in spatial terms derived from their understanding of the universe as matter surfaced in their position that Christ was not and indeed could not be present according to the human nature in the Lord's Supper. For Calvin, the ascension meant that the power and efficacy of Christ was spread throughout the universe. But that, now quoting Calvin, his body has been raised above all heavens. So if it's been raised above all he- heavens, how, can, how on earth can it be down here on earth uh, in the Lord's Supper? So you can see that what's in view here is a particularly spatial and an oddly idiosyncratically spatial view of the ascension of Jesus. Like, well, he couldn't be here because it would take too long because the universe is too big. (laughs) I mean, that would be like a modern Calvinistic argument uh, if they're going to be consistent with their own internal logic and the logic of their, their forefather. Scare continues, as Werner Ehlert points out, such a spatial view of heaven also held in the Middle Ages, contradicts the New Testament understanding. In some cases, heaven can refer to what is commonly called the blue skies, and in other cases to the abode of God in which Christ is exalted. Ephesians 4.10 and and Hebrews 7.26. In other words, uh, the language of of the heavens in Scripture or heaven in Scripture is already already fluid and dynamic in such a way that you have to take it in a rather nuanced way. for example, in all likelihood, it's the case when Paul refers to himself as, as ascending to the, uh, the third heaven. Yeah. yeah, The first heaven, in his mode of thinking, is almost certainly the case. The first heaven is the blue sky where the birds fly. The second heaven is where the heavenly bodies move. And the third heaven is the realm of God. So it's, a, it's the third heaven to ascend to the third heaven. It's not even spatial. That's why he says, in the body or out of the body, I do not know. He doesn't say, "Well, just as my Lord blasted off through the blue sky, through space, and finally arrived in heaven, so too did I. My body was transformed into a rocket ship." Now, no, nothing like that. It's not spatial, and that's really just if you take one point that scares demonstrating via Werner Aylert. It's simply that a simplistic, medieval, reformed understanding of. It's like the, uh, isn't it reported that the, that the first Russian astronaut that was up in space was, you know, said back, I'm up here and there's no God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So that's what we're against. That's what we're against. And the, <laughs> the scriptures never lend itself to that view. Poor guy. He was very poorly catechized. All right. Scare continues, um, now quoting uh, quoting Ehlert, From the time of Zwingli until well into the 18th century, the Reformed Church used the ascension as its strongest argument against the Lutheran doctrine of Holy Communion. If Christ ascended into heaven, he cannot be omnipresent. That's a terrible statement in and of itself, isn't it? For heaven is a definite place above the stars. And Christ's disciples could testify that he had begun the spatial journey to heaven. <sighs> ah. I mean, its really it would be really interesting. I've never done this. I've never had the opportunity. Frankly, if I had the opportunity, I wouldn't take it. But it's interesting, nonetheless, to think like this. Because for a Reformed person, a human body can't be anything more than just a human body. It's The finite's not capable of the infinite. But does not that a principle does that not that principle apply to the entire time space continuum? So if you were to really be consistent on that philosophical point, you would have to assume that Christ is still flying through the outer reaches of space, that he has not found a way to transcend the limitations of the human body in its speed through space, uh, lest he do more than the human body by nature could do. I wonder what they do too. He can't breathe up there. His ability to breathe in space also contradicts the limitations of his human nature. But anyway, he would, stu- more comically, he probably wouldn't be that far. Only 2,000 years. Even if flying at the speed of light, he wouldn't be very far. Just even in our own cosmos. But don't they leave out a lot of scripture? Do- I mean- the question for those online don't they leave out a lot of scripture? The answer is yes. So this is, uh, the, yeah, this is the problem with viewing, viewing the, the ascension in this way. And Scare's point ultimately is going to be like, okay, well, if we don't view the ascension this way, which clearly we can't do, it's not biblical, it's not even rational, um, in what way should we view it? Now, before we go there, he's going to point out a couple of these sort of uh, liberal figures, Robinson and Tillich. So let's get there first very bottom of page 101, in his popularly written book, Honest to God, John A.T. Robinson wanted to do away with speaking of God in spatial terms. For God, quote-unquote, up there, he substituted Paul Tillich's view that God as the ground of being is present in humanity. To accomplish this, he asserts that Luke describes the Ascension with mythological language. Robinson's solution of understanding the Ascension as a myth, a view borrowed from Boltmann, who saw the the descent-ascent language as coming from Gnosticism, is equally unacceptable. It should be recalled that in this discussion of the three-story universe, the Reformed and not the Lutherans understood the universe in spatial terms. I mean, again, just just to pause here, put your finger there, but just to pause here, even the scriptures where, where what does Jesus say, the kingdom of heaven is near you. I mean, even a very simple statement like that really destroys this overly spatial view of things. Um, as Jesus says uh, of the angels that belong, you know, you know, of the little children, they are always seeing my Father's face, who is in heaven. And so, even if they're even if they're on earth doing their activities, they're always seeing the Father's face. So, heaven, heaven. I mean, again, it, there's a little bit of danger in doing this, but uh, but much a much closer analogy analogy to how heaven is is it's much more like another dimension that sort of interpenetrates the, the cosmos, the, the visible convo, the cosmos. That would be a much more accurate way of thinking about it than some sort of really three-tiered you know, sort of thing where you actually have to physically fly out of space. I mean, by, by that same logic, well, we don't know how fast a soul can travel. I was like, by that same logic, all the saints who have died are probably merely on their way to heaven. <laughs> Uh, so so we don't view it that way, but to you know again, it's an analogy I'm not saying this is absolute or concrete in any way But I am saying by analogy thinking of heaven as a dimension that interpenetrates Our reality as much is probably much more biblical and probably much more clear you remember for example um, Isn't it in the story of of David where uh, the Lord tells him when you see the treetops moving and that, those are the angelic beings Or who was it? Was it Elisha or Elijah who opened the eyes of the man who was with him and they saw the heavenly armies? You remember? So there's sort of like this interpenetration of what's visible and invisible and at any point in time God can reveal to us that which is invisible and it's there. Can we look at the Mount of Transfiguration for any help on this? Because obviously they got there in a day or a short period of time. Yeah, Moses and Elijah were there. Yeah, and Moses, yeah, they were there. Right. that's intersecting with heaven. And we assume in their bodies. They were standing there. They were yeah. visibly present. They, uh, we know that Elijah ascended in his body. Yeah. We know that there a, was a dispute over Moses' body, which probably indicates that there was a need to have it uh, for the transfiguration. Yeah, exactly, Bob. That's very well said. Very well said. I mean, again, it, just, it simply falls apart because it's not biblical, this Reformed take and this reformed worldview falls apart because it's not biblical. It also falls apart because it's internally incoherent. And that's really kind of what we're doing is just poking holes in its own internal incoherence. All right, Um, we left off near the end of that uh, first paragraph. The iron, uh, page 102. The irony which the Lutheran dogmatician Kalov Used to ridicule the Reformed idea of a spatial heaven, has lost none of its bite. Here, quoting uh, Kalov, but the heaven which Christ occupied is not locally situated above the stars, as the Calvinists prattle. Scripture knows nothing of this heaven. No, it is a majestic and glorious heaven, which, like God Himself, is everywhere. There's the inner penetration I was talking about a moment ago. The mathematical calculation we leave to the Calvinists themselves, who have certainly busied themselves with this noble science. All right, well, there's Kalov, dropping some elbows on the Reformed of old. Scare continues The confessions, the Lutheran confessions, do not understand the ascension as some sort of space travel wherein Christ is transported from one place to another, from earth to any level of the heavens, high or low, but simply as Jesus' removal from the ordinary sight of his disciples. That's a a key definitional point, Jesus' removal from the ordinary sight of his disciples. Scare continues, Aylard explains that Luther broke, quote, with the spatial conceptions of heaven... Uh, and looked upon it as the expression for the final act of liberation from the limitations to which the humiliation had subjected Christ within the created world, quote. Scare continues, his exaltation in the heavens did not contradict his promise to be with his church. And there's really the other line worth underlining. Makes it, makes it quite clear. His exaltation in the heavens, or even his ascension into the heavens, does not contradict his promise to be with his church. And remember how the Reformed handle this, how anemically, well, Christ in his body is up in heaven, Christ without his body is with us here on earth. Well, then how many Christs do you have? Two. And here's clearly where the Reformed are Nestorianizing. Again, on the basis of their philosophical principles, their theological principles get all twisted up. So his exaltation or his ascension in the heavens did not contradict his promise to be with his church. He, us, in the words of Nagel, he ascends away from us in order to draw closer to us than ever before. Unlike the Reformed, Lutherans were not encumbered with such a restricted understanding of the universe. Neither the incarnation nor the ascension involved Christ going from one place to another consequently the Lutherans I mean think about that too no sooner than he gets there he'd have to turn around if we have any hope of the world ending soon. <laughs> It'd be like that shuttle race you do as a kid you know where you, you run and you grab the eraser and then you run back as fast as you can. That would have to be like Christ his ascent into heaven if he's going to return anytime. Yeah. Have to Hello everyone. Be right back. Huge journey back to, your, to earth. All right. I'm having too much fun this morning, you can tell. I'm on my second cup of coffee, a little slap happy from the elections, a little tired of being depressed. (laughs) We're having a little fun this morning. All right. So again, neither the incarnation, think of the incarnation, remember the Son of God, quote unquote, descending, To take on flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary neither the incarnation nor the ascension the going up of the incarnate one involved Christ going from one place to another consequently the Lutherans never had to grapple with any spatial considerations when they spoke of the real presence Christ was present according to both natures and hence in his body and soul with his church again we're just unencumbered by the spatial Wherever Christ is, there his body is. Wherever his body is, there Christ is. We don't think about it in spatial terms because there's nothing in the Bible that indicates we ought to. His glorification in and above the highest heavens was not understood in terms of space, Scare writes. Calvin's view that in the supper, the soul of the believer ascends into heaven. Right, here's the cliche. Christ can't descend to us, but we can ascend to him. Oh, Calvinism. Calvin's view that in the supper, the soul of the believer ascends into heaven to feed on Christ. uh, There is condemned. Formula of Concord. Epitome. Paragraph, or uh, article 8, paragraph 29. There is no movement from place to place in either the ascension of Christ into heaven or in the supposed ascension of the believer to Christ. Right, because very literally speaking, they say the soul ascends into heaven. How? I mean, if that were true, your soul would experience the spatial travel. The soul is quite very much there in the body the whole time. We continue. The question of the ascension in our time has been joined with that of the resurrection. Those who see the resurrection as a myth symbolizing God's glorification of Jesus and not as a distinct historical event must similarly understand the ascension in mythical terms, i.e. Robinson, Tillich, etc., those we heard from before. For them, the ascension, like the resurrection, is not a historical event, but another symbolic story signifying God's glorification of Jesus And thus, it is redundant or at least unnecessary. Certain historical figures from antiquity, for example, Romulus and Augustus, are said to have ascended into heaven. According to this thinking, the one event of the glorification of Jesus is symbolized by the stories of his resurrection and ascension. The ascension does not play the same important role in the Gospels as does the resurrection inasmuch as the actual details surrounding the circumstances are recorded briefly only by Luke in his gospel and more extensively in Acts. The longer ending of Mark also refers to the ascension. Nevertheless, its inclusion as an appendix to Mark demonstrates its importance as part of the early church's Christology. The addition of the appendix with its reference to the Ascension demonstrates that at the time of its inclusion, a complete account of the life of Jesus included the Ascension. Though Luke is the only evangelist to provide historical detail concerning the Ascension, it was explicitly or implicitly part of Jesus' preaching. In the small apocalypse, Jesus speaks of himself coming as the world's judge. The small apocalypses. Um, Jesus preaching in Matthew 25, 31 through 46. In answer to the high priest's question whether he is God's son, Jesus identifies himself as the son of man who will be seated on the clouds of heaven. After his resurrection, Jesus speaks to Mary about his ascending to God. That's what I just referenced from John 20. He is the Son of Man who can go into heaven because he has come down thence. So there, Scare giving us a brief biblical survey of the treatments of the ascension, not nearly as central as the death and resurrection of Jesus, but there and important um, precisely because they connect the dots for us how it is that Jesus no longer appears to us the way he appeared to his disciples those 40 days after his resurrection and yet promises to be with us specifically in word and sacrament the link there the missing link there is the ascension but isn't that kind of even addressed by Jesus himself when he's talking to the woman at the well okay you brought up the woman at the well and uh, so what's what, how can you connect the dots because for us she's uh, he's She's asking him, uh, you, we have to go to Jerusalem and stuff. And Jesus says, yeah, because you don't know what you worship. Mm. And uh, he tells her, yes, that's true, because the Jews know that. But there's a time and now, and it is now here now, mm. that you will worship in spirit now. Yeah, quite, quite possible that Jesus has a, a bit of a different perspective he's trying to get across there in that text. But maybe tangential in this, that what he says to the woman is fulfilled ultimately after his ascension. Namely, uh, that uh, the Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and truth. And that is precisely what occurs after the ascension, um, where Christ being the truth, the Spirit being the capital S Spirit, you have Father, truth, and Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the full revelation of God and his redemption of us in Christ Jesus, his bringing us to faith by the Holy Spirit, the fulfillment of that, of that f- the fullness of the worship that the Father desires coming manifest in the age of the church. Yeah, I that would be the connection I'd probably make there. All right, page 103, uh, last, last paragraph. And we are, we are moving along as quick as I can here. We may have to skip a bit. The ascension did not occupy the same place of importance in the proclamation of the early church, as did the Lord's death, resurrection, and return in judgment, but was clearly implied in the, in the latter, that is, his returning in judgment. His return in judgment would be patterned after his ascension. This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Remember the angel says this in Acts one eleven. Jesus' ascension was part of the church's confession already in apostolic times. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God because he, quote, has gone into heaven, end quote. Luke 24, 51 speaks of Jesus being carried up into heaven, again implying that God was glorifying him. Since 1 Peter is generally recognized as being written from Rome, it is more than likely that it was a progenitor of our Apostles' Creed, which originated from the Creed of Rome. In any event, it certainly is part of the same history from which our creeds developed. Those desiring inclusion in the church through baptism not only had to confess that Jesus died and rose, but that he went into heaven. The ascension, like the resurrection, is both a historical and eschatological event. Remember, eschatological means having to do with the end times or really a more profound transcendent sort of reality. As historical event, it is part of our history. But as eschatological event, it reinforces the resurrection as the beginning of a new era for mankind and prepares for Christ's return. I think that's the key. That's the key, is understanding the ascension as an eschatological event. The resurrection marks a beginning of a new era, a new way in which God dwells with his people in Christ Jesus, a new worship, him as our temple, a worship in spirit and truth, as we said moments ago. Um, And then this being the final phase before uh, the return of Christ, and then the dwelling place of God with man, and what we see fulfilled in the last chapters of Revelation. That's why some people, some well-meaning Christians say, wouldn't it have been better to live in the Old Testament times? To which the answer is, no. No, we are very grateful to live in these times. The New Testament times are the fullness. They're the fullest fullness you can get before the fullness itself when Jesus returns. And everything is brought to fulfillment. Um, The Old Testament temple the Old Testament face-to-face encounters with God, all of these things are foreshadowing the greater reality of the New Testament and Christ with us. God in Christ face-to-face, uh, though not visibly, but face-to-face invisibly with each and every believer as opposed to just this prophet here or that king there. Doesn't Hebrews doze into that Oh yeah, Hebrews would be a great text to bring into to this discussion. Pastor? Yes, sir. Why wouldn't you say... Oh, you certainly could say he dwells within us, absolutely. Difference, that's a difference to the Old Testament. Yes, you could make some distinctions there between his indwelling the saints in the Old Testament versus his indwelling the saints in the New. You could definitely make some distinctions there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, well, just looking at the time we have, maybe we'll make it. <laughs> Maybe we'll make it. I reserve the right to skip. Top of 105. The ascension must be understood in connection with the 40 days following the resurrection. During the period Jesus had already entered into glory. At the moment of the resurrection, he was with the Father in glory. Though the ascension and session at the right hand would follow. During his earthly life, his body had the same needs as those of others. He slept, ate, became tired, worked, and like a faithful child of God, prayed for the coming of the kingdom. During the 40 days after the resurrection, after which time he fully resumed the use of the glory his before the incarnation, he appeared to his disciples. As he appeared, so he also passed out of their sight. Luke 24, 31. So you see a different scare reminding us here of the different mode of presence, the different way of being. Christ before the crucifixion and resurrection, Christ after the crucifixion and resurrection. A different mode of presence, a different way of being. You know, after the resurrection, Jesus doesn't go out and buy a house <laughs> and just go about his earthly life. He doesn't do that. It's a different mode and way of being. He exercises his divinity quite overtly in ways he only seldomly did or occasionally did before. As he appeared to his disciples, so he also passed out of their sight, Luke 24, 31. The ascension marks the end of these ordinary post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, and is qualitatively no different from his other departures from them during this period. Okay, in other words, A, Jesus doesn't show up to his believers having a fish breakfast prepared for them on the shore anymore. Um, B, his disappearance in terms of uh, the ascension is no different than his other disappearances. He remains present with us. Um, The visual perception of him comes and goes and goes finally in the ascension until his visible uh, appearance. You know, this too, is, this too is a very accurate way. So, uh, biblically, what you find very interesting is um, the return of Jesus is sometimes described in terms of apocalypsis, which is the unveiling or the revelatory. That is to say, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The second coming of Christ can be understood as simply unveiling, and oh, we see him, we now see with our eyes him who has truly been with us this entire time. Does that make sense? So that is also a very biblical way of thinking and speaking. And when you take that in, in turn with what Scare has presented here, it probably gives us a much more accurate view of what the second coming is like. Um, the second coming is not going to be like uh, Jesus arriving on, some, uh, arriving on some sort of spaceship or chariot and CNN and Fox News picking it up. And the first place you're going to hear about it is on your, uh, your smartwatch, you know, giving you a news fly. That's not how the second coming of Christ is likely to happen. The Bible gives us no indication of that. Rather, in the same way he was taken up and became uh, invisible to them on the basis of the crowd, cloud, so he will return. That is, uh, the clouds will open and there he will be. Um, we will perceive him who we did not perceive you know, with our eyes. Uh, he who is always present with us, lo, I am with you to the end of the age. And We have not seen but believed. Now we will both believe and see, or rather see and, and cease to believe because you don't believe things you see. You know things you see. Such a beautiful line and such a mysterious line that came out of our epistle text this last Sunday. Gosh, I'm getting off track. Um, we will see him as he is. We shall be as he is, for we shall see him as he is. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible? There's some sense in which, at the revelation of Jesus, at the seeing and knowing him for how he is, we are utterly transformed so that we become as he is. It's just a beautiful, beautiful thought. All right, well, we must must keep pace. The Ascension marks the end of these ordinary post-resurrection appearances of Jesus and is qualitatively no different from his other departures from them during this period. The drama of the departure at the Ascension, the final words, the lifting up, the going into heaven, the announcement of the angels indicates to the disciples that they should not expect to see him any longer in his post-resurrection appearances. The purpose of the 40-day period before the ascension was to convince his followers that he had actually risen from the dead. The ascension does not mean that the appearances of Jesus would completely stop. Paul receives an appearance of Jesus not only on the Damascus Road, but also on other occasions. Ananias sees Jesus who instructs him to baptize Paul. The glorified Christ appears to John on the Isle of Patmos. Paul separates himself from those who have received pre-ascension appearances of the resurrected Lord. These are listed as Peter, the twelve, the five hundred brothers, James, and all the apostles. Paul describes himself as one who is born out of due time. He did not receive the appearance of the resurrected Jesus under the same circumstances as did the remaining original 11. These post-Easter appearances of Jesus provided the foundation of the church's proclamation that he had risen from the dead. In Luke's description, the cloud covers Jesus as an anticipation of his return on the clouds of judgment. In other words, there were post-resurrection pre-ascension appearances of Jesus in one class, and there were post-resurrection, post-ascension appearances of Jesus put in another class. That's really scarce point, and he's fleshing that out with biblical data. The older Lutheran teachers, Martin Chemnitz, John Gerhard, John Quensted, David Halaz, saw the session at the right hand of Christ, or, excuse me, the session at the right hand as Christ's reign in power and grace. The session at the right hand began with the ascension and continues to the day of judgment when Christ hands over his kingdom to God, 1 Corinthians 15. The session describes what Jesus is doing now. As Francis Pieper says, the sitting of Christ at the right hand of God designates the unending dominion upon which Christ entered by his ascension. When the scriptures and the creeds speak of Christ being seated at God's right hand, this refers first to his being honored by God, but even more to Christ's current activity in the world for the benefit of his church. So here's Scare describing again what I've already described here, even in this class studying this text, namely that the right hand of God biblically isn't a spatial locale, but is rather where God is working powerfully to save his people. And so for Christ to ascend to the right hand of God doesn't mean he's ascended to some spatial locale, but now wherever God is working for the salvation of his people, there he is working in and through Christ. Scare continues, The distinction between the reign of grace and power is a New Testament distinction. As Christ deals with his church through his presence in the Word and sacraments, And with the world within the forces of history his reign of power is not simply that Jesus exercises his authority as omnipotent creator but rather that he controls for the benefit of his cause in the church those satanic forces which have opposed God and his Saints since the foundation of the world In other words, even the evil in this world, God uses as good. That's where even if we see political things happening that are contrary to God's church, we have no reason to despair. God will use even these for the benefit and blessing of his church. We need only remain faithful. And we may be disappointed that Satan has won this victory or that, but we need to remain faithful that God will use even that evil for our good. The Christian struggles against the rulers and authorities who have learned of their fate by his descent into hell. So they, the uh, fallen angels who are rulers and authorities in this present world, in this present age, uh, they know of their fate and we are struggling against them. They are, trying to, they are trying to fight in the sphere of power. Christ will eventually overcome them. For the time being... <laughs> It's as Luther says, the devil is God's devil. <laughs> all right, so the devil, despite all his power, despite being the god of this world, despite being this ferocious lion that we must be wary of, even still, he is still just God's tool. And whatever the devil does simply works to further God's plan and purposes. So too then with all the fallen angels. So at the right hand of God... Jesus exercises his effective control over the evil forces for the protection and benefit of the church for which he prays. Eilert expresses it well. The doctrine of the exalted Christ does not terminate here. It is continued in the doctrine of the work of Christ, of Holy Communion, and of the consummation. The longer ending of Mark expresses the early church's awareness that its work was of Christ, now exalted at God's right hand. Here, quoting Mark 16. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them. Yeah, notice what it means to sit at the right hand of God. He is working with them. And confirmed the message by signs that attended it. So Jesus uh, confirming what they preached with signs. You can think of the uh, the book of Acts detailing these for us. All right, very briefly, I'm sorry, no time to to dawdle. Very briefly, the return of Christ in a page and a half. Can you believe it? That's why I say there must have been another project on, on Dr. Scare's docket. With the teaching that Christ is at the right hand of God... Christology proceeds through ecclesiology. Christology being sort of the study of Christ, ecclesiology the study of the church. So Christology proceeds through ecclesiology. And with his return, finally into eschatology, the end times, the final fulfillment of all things. The doctrine of the last things. The nature and situation of the church is a demonstration of Jesus' session at the right hand of God. How so? His strength is made perfect in weakness. What's the 2,000 year history of the church but utter weakness? And yet, we're indestructible. We're indestructible, and Christ's purposes carry on. You, the more I, and we've been through this before, but if you leave the church alone, it grows. If you persecute the church, it grows faster. No matter how weak we are, no matter how many of us you put to death or torture or imprison or discourage, the church marches on and is indestructible. Uh, we are living out the crucifixion of Christ right now. We will soon live out the resurrection of Christ. And that, that is precisely the point that Scare is bringing to bear here. The nature and situation of the church is a demonstration of Jesus' session at the right hand of God. And His coming again is part of the last things. Ecclesiology, that is the nature of the church, flows from Christology, the nature of Christ. Um, thus also Christ is our head and we are His body. That's what's at play here. Since through the church, Christ continues his activity and presence on earth through the preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments. Ecclesiology, that is the church, the reality of the church, and eschatology, the end things, are reserved for other sections of this dogmatics but are not, strictly speaking, separate or autonomous loci or dogmatic sections. The article on Christ's return clearly belongs to the second articles of both the Apostles and Nicene Creeds. The return of Christ was an essential part of the earliest Christian proclamation and has its roots in the preaching of Jesus himself, a point which even the most radical biblical scholars will concede. The view that Christ's message was solely espoused, uh, excuse me, was solely determined by eschatology has given rise to the theology of hope espoused by Moltmann and the theology of history espoused by Panenberg. In spite of the minimalism of many scholars in limiting the message of Jesus to eschatology and the dogmatic distortions arising from this one-sided emphasis, an opportunity is provided to give more attention to this locus in dogmatic theology. Um, In other words, I think Scare's saying, there's going to be an eschatology book in this series. That's why I'm not doing much here. (laughs) And true enough, we read Stevenson, didn't we? His book on eschatology. a Wonderful text in this Lutheran dogmatic series. Scare continues, Jesus is the son of man who comes on the clouds of heaven and before whom all nations will stand in judgment. The high priest will see Jesus sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The Jesus who is taken up into heaven shall come again. The one who has been raised from the dead is the same one whom God has appointed as the judge of the living and the dead. The session at the right hand of God is the only article which addresses a present or contemporary Christology. That is, it describes not only what Christ did, but what he is now doing. The return is the only futuristic Christological article. That is, it describes what Jesus will do. The work of the atonement is completed... But Christ, as conqueror, still awaits the complete subjection of all things to himself. 1 Corinthians 15. Every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth has not yet bowed and confessed that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2. And thus, all that is involved in the glorification of Jesus is not complete. For the final revelation of his glory... Jesus must wait with his church for the last day. At the point of the ascension and throughout his session at the right hand of God, Christology becomes ecclesiology. You know, and here too scare doing a handoff on the book on ecclesiology in this series that we have not yet studied, uh, The Church and Ministry by Kurt Marquardt the Jesus who was glorified by God in his resurrection assists his church not only out of promise to those whom he has redeemed but because he identifies with his church in its suffering remember what he says to paul why do you persecute my church now he says why do you persecute me, me? exactly and so, too, whatever you do to the least of these, your brothers, that's where brothers specifically means Christians, you do unto me. It's Christ associating himself with the church. So close is this identification with the suffering church that the one who is resurrected identifies himself, oh, here, got ahead, himself to Saul as, quote, Jesus whom you are persecuting. Acts 9.5. Though resurrection means that the normal physical sensations associated with ordinary human life are finished, it would be improper to describe the glorified Jesus as so impassable, that means incapable of suffering, as so impassable as to be unaware of the church's suffering. I love this. Jesus continues to suffer with us. The atonement is complete, but his suffering isn't complete, strictly speaking, because our suffering goes on, his suffering goes on. our crucifixion is his crucifixion it's just it's such beautiful theology and we've missed this we've missed this and we've been afraid to say that christ is passable we've been afraid to say that the father is passable because we think we're going to do something to the divinity of god we're not yeah we're yeah ironically right yeah no i mean on the one side he's utterly transcendent and impassable. on the under, on the other side he's utterly imminent and passable as as God, he knows all things before we pray. As Father, he wants to relate to us as if he doesn't and as if he wants to hear from us, right? As As all-powerful God, he suffers nothing. But as Heavenly Father, he suffers with his children, you know? I mean, what loving Father could see his children hurt and not... Be wounded by that. So it's both ends. It always is with God. And this is a side of the coin that uh, is definitely being recovered in our age uh, to God's grace. And, I mean, on account of God's grace and to his glory. All right. We are out of time, but I'm going to finish it anyway. Leave if you have to. The church which the risen Lord protects from Satan and for which he prays is the extension of his person and work on earth. The church is the body of Christ. Gosh, doesn't the Lord's Supper teach us this beautifully? We partake of his body and so become his body. The church's life is Christ. Luke, with his gospel and account of the early church, is writing one life of Christ with the first part focusing on the life that culminated in death. The second part extends from the resurrection through Pentecost until the final coming the church's glorification will be patterned after that of Christ, who is, as Paul says, the firstfruits of them that slept. And Christ's final glorification on the day of judgment shall be completed in the glorification of his church. Some contemporary Lutheran theologians understand the return of Christ in universalistic terms, as the solidarity of humanity. Well, we can pass on that. I think that's brought and quoted from the ELCA. Not only does such universalism contradict the unified testimony of the New Testament, in which wrath awaits those who reject the call of the gospel, but the creedal statement that Christ will judge all who have ever lived in one moment becomes devoid of any meaning. Judgment is no longer judgment. The church as the extension of Christ's life in the world is lost when the church and the world are identified or merged. These are big problems, big problems. I mean, quite, the, this is where in the ELCA, the universalism and the God loves and forgives everyone message turns all theology into utter mush and ends up, ends up just swinging Christians over into unbelief because if, if even the unbelievers are saved and spared and God has nothing but grace and mercy for them, then why bother being a Christian, right? So, yeah, this is this is poison and toxicity, and this is where it's ill-formulated. But some people say, "Hey, it's the gospel that's ruined the church." It's ill-formulated. That's not an accurate statement in and of itself, but you can see the sentiment behind it. The sentiment is really universal. I mean, to be more accurate, this mushy ELCA radical Lutheran universalism is ruining the church and is is ruining uh, theology. So, what do we want to do then? We want to be very clear in our distinction between believers and unbelievers. Very clear in our distinction um, between Christ and Satan. And very clear also then in our preaching and proclamation as unpopular as it has been, and I get it, it's been very unpopular for the last 100 years probably to preach fire and brimstone and doom and gloom and that kind of thing. The fact of the matter is that Christ is saving us from the wrath to come. Christ himself teaches that we are living in times analogous to that of Noah before the flood. The flood is going to come. Only Noah and seven others are going to be saved. The wrath of God is coming, and only those who are in Christ are going to be saved. And that has to be our message to the world. Our message cannot simply be law, you're a sinner, gospel, but Christ died, so it's okay, the end. That is is not the biblical proclamation. The biblical proclamation is that we are dead in our trespasses and sins and subject to God's wrath unless we be baptized into Christ, and then we are going to be saved from the wrath that is to come law, gospel, and judgment. All three of those taught together. And I'll digress, but that's precisely what Jesus teaches that the Spirit will do when he teaches the Spirit's person and work in John. Well, that will have to be our end since we are thoroughly out of time. Next week, Chrysostom on Marriage and Family Life. Hopefully you picked up a copy. If not, you still have time. Amazon can get it to you shortly. We'll be looking at that in the weeks to come. The Lord be with you. And